0: Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray now that as we come as your people around your word, that you would quieten our minds and our hearts from the other worries of this day and prepare us, that we would rightly understand it, prepare both hearts and minds that we would be changed through it. And most of all, bring us the strengthening and the encouragement of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, isn't this a, a challenging psalm? It's not the most jolly passage, perhaps, uh, that I've been given uh, to preach from this morning. But it is also a very realistic passage, isn't it? I'm sure that many of us realize that there, there can be times when the Lord's people do feel Terribly, deeply, gut-wrenchingly troubled. Times when it it feels like we actually can bear no more, but then we still have to. As blow after blow keeps coming. When it seems perhaps that things cannot get any worse, but then they do. Have you ever felt like that? Has there ever been a, a time when you felt like it is a real struggle to bring yourself to tomorrow? So down perhaps that you actually feel... Spirit, uh, physically sick, depressed, despairing. Perhaps there's even been times in your life when you've wondered that whether the Lord himself has now finally turned against you, that he is counting you with the wicked and punishing you for destruction. Well, if you can identify with that, you can also identify with some of what King David expresses in this psalm. For here, we are going to see him with these very struggles. But we're also going to see him dealing with those struggles in the most wonderful way. This is Psalm 6. Now, it's actually a psalm we don't know very much about beyond what's in the psalm itself. The title says it's, it's for singing. It's for the choir master with stringed instruments. If you have a look at the title here, it says, according to the Sheminith. It means the eighth. We don't know what it means. Perhaps it's tune number eight, or or, or, or these instruments have got eight strings. It probably doesn't matter. And then it says that it is a psalm of David. That is, it is a psalm of the king, the king of Israel, who who ruled about a thousand BC. However, the fact that we know little about the psalm from outside is richly made up for by the amount that we see inside the psalm if you're thinking about the structure of the psalm uh, and, and there is an outline i think in your bulletins um, the the psalm as a whole falls into main two main parts there's this first part of the psalm in that part we see three ways that david calls out to the god to god in his struggles and uh, we will see him praying pleading and weeping And then in the second part, which is roughly verses 8 to the end, we will see then David responding to God who has heard this cry, this prayer. So I invite you to come with me as we go through those 10 verses, joining David as he struggles, as he cries out to the Lord, and then seeing together both his prayer answered and him responding with confidence and hope in place of fear. Psalm 6, verse 1, David prays, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It's common as I suspect most of us know in the Psalms for two things that mean basically the same thing to be written in parallel, and that's how we should read them. What he means by the Lord not rebuking him in anger is basically the same as the Lord not disciplining him in his wrath. If you wanted to to distinguish, perhaps you could look at Psalm 39, where we see the Lord disciplines with rebukes for sin. That is, the rebuke itself is the action of disciplining the sinner. So is David praying here that the Lord would not rebuke him? Well, actually, no. In fact, David prays at other times that the Lord will rebuke him, for he knows that to be rebuked, is a kindness from God. So what is he praying for here? Well, he is praying specifically that the Lord, when he rebukes him, should not do so according to his anger and his wrath. That is to say that the Lord should rebuke him, but in that fatherly, redemptive way that aims to turn a sinner from his sin and back to the Lord. Not according to that judgment, That awaits the wicked, the wrath and the anger of God for all eternity against rebellious mankind. It is as if he is saying, rebuke me, discipline me, but to correct me, not destroy me. Kind of like what Jeremiah will say much later. Discipline me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. But be gracious, verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, my soul is greatly troubled. It's interesting, isn't it, that when David comes to give God some kind of reason not to rebuke him in wrath and anger, the first thing that he comes to appeal to, is not anything of himself, but to the Lord's graciousness. To be gracious, is that's the Lord's own prerogative, his own choice. And David knows the Lord. He knows that this is the Lord who is gracious, to whom he will be gracious, and merciful, to whom he will be show mercy. David knows that if the Lord will indeed save him, it will be because of his graciousness and not because of David. And we've seen, haven't we, that to that prayer for graciousness, he has added immediately an explanation, a, 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 a prayer of his current situation. Now, some commentators look, look at these verses, uh, verse 2 and 3, and they conclude that what's happening here is David is really sick. He's got some terrible wasting disease. However, as we carry on, as we get to, to verse 7 and 10, we'll see that the big problem is not sickness, but enemies, which makes these verses, do you see, a metaphor. He's picturing the assaults of his enemies, as it were, as an illness, a sickness. I am languishing, he says. And the picture here is like a plant. You've all seen the plant that you didn't water on a really hot, sunny day? And it's languishing, it's wilting in the hot sun as it dries and as it shrivels up. He cries, heal me. That is to say, in your graciousness, restore me again to how I was. For my bones are troubled and my soul is also greatly troubled. By bones and soul, it seems he means everything. The whole of him is is deeply troubled. And, and, And this word deeply troubled, in fact, is... It's probably a very soft translation. The, the word implies more than just pain or, or troubling. It implies, perhaps we could say, say a sheer terror. A terror of, of body, of soul, of everything alike. While having thus prayed for God's graciousness, he turns from prayer to his pleading. He pleads with the Lord seeing that it is the Lord alone who can relieve him from his trouble. This is verse 3, he prays. But you, O Lord, how long? You can sense the urgency, can't you? It's as if he is saying, Lord, I cannot take it any longer. And I'm sure that many of us have felt like that before, haven't we? But you, O Lord, how long? Then he pleads, verse 4, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. That is, o Lord, stop continuing to rebuke and discipline me in this way. Turn, turn, Lord, to a new way. Withdraw your hand from against me and reach out to heal me. Do you notice here that he doesn't hesitate to admit that both his affliction and his hope come from the Lord. And then next, he adds the most important statement of this psalm. He says, and this is verse four, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The word behind steadfast love here is is a Hebrew word, chesed. And it is, let me tell you, one of the most wonderful and beautiful words of all of scripture it is that word which describes the extraordinary overflowing unexpected undeserved almost impossible to comprehend love that the lord pours out upon his people it, it is the word that describes the love the steadfast love that the lord showed his people as he led them out of slavery in egypt it is that steadfast love that he shows them as he forgave their sins again And again, and again, it is the steadfast love of the Lord who was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. It is the same steadfast love, if you remember, that David cries out to in Psalm 51 after the adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, he starts, according to your steadfast love. And most importantly now for David... He knows that this is a steadfast love that the Lord has promised, has sworn to show him as his king. That's why he can now appeal to it. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Then he goes on to explain another reason why he thinks that God in his steadfast love should indeed hear his plea. And the reason is, that if he were to die, then he realizes he cannot carry on praising the Lord. He says, end of verse 4, Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I guess you have a question in your mind, right? Is David saying that those who die will no longer be able to remember the Lord, that there's no hope? Even for those who die in Christ, the Lord's children go into nothingness. Is that what he is teaching? Well, first of all, if that were what he was saying, it would fly in the face of what David says elsewhere concerning Sheol. He says in Psalm 30, of how he cried out to the Lord, who heard his voice and brought him up out of Sheol. And in Psalm 139, he speaks specifically of how the Lord is even there in Sheol. So what gives? The key to correcting our misunderstanding is to rightly understand what it means to praise the Lord. In our modern culture, we have a tendency towards very individual, private religion. Is that right? It's nice to have other people around when you're praising the Lord, but other people are not of the essence in praising the Lord. Is that right? Right? It's mostly about me and and God. But in David's time, and as the scriptures describe praising the Lord, it is very different. To praise the Lord was not about my private prayer life, but about my public thanksgiving before the Lord for his steadfast love before the people. To praise God is not primarily to go into your closet and say thank you to the Lord, although that's right to do. It is about doing so before people. And I've I've put a few references in your outline. And if you notice, those references all have one thing in common. All these places where David describes the place of praising the Lord are attached to people. We see there that Praising the Lord means telling people about the Lord, speaking of his mercy, speaking of his steadfast love, proclaiming the Lord among the nations. We see him being praised among the people, his name declared, his wonders praised among the mighty throng. We see praise in the presence of the godly. We see his name being glorified in the great congregation. That is where and what praising the Lord is about. And when we realize that praising is about praising the Lord before people, then we understand that, yes, David is exactly right, isn't he? Making remembrance of the Lord, praising him before his people, does indeed stop at the grave. We know that those who are dead in Christ lack for nothing, that they rest in perfect blessed peace, with complete joy in the Lord. Yet the fact is, they are no longer physically present amongst us, praising him. And that's what motivates David's plea. It's as if he's saying to the Lord, how will it glorify you to have me in Sheol, where I cannot praise you for your steadfast love amongst your people anymore? It's a similar logic, if you think about it, to What Paul says in Philippians when he says I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far But it is more necessary for you that I remain in this body Having made his prayer and his plea David now turns to his weeping and this is verse 6. He says I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with my weeping, my eye wastes away because of grief, it grows weak because of all my foes. Plainly, King David is a broken man here, isn't he? A man who metaphorically is sick almost to death, a man whose enemies the Lord has allowed to surround him to afflict him and bring him low. A man who is caught, do you see, between, on the one hand, that sure knowledge of the steadfast love of the Lord and the fact that he is now utterly terrified and troubled. A man who, therefore, very rightly knows that it is again to the Lord and his steadfast love that he should turn. And as he does so, as he considers the Lord and his promises, his sure promise to him, as he recalls the gracious loving kindness of the Lord, as he brings his petition to his king, something wonderful suddenly takes place. Suddenly, if you see in this psalm, in the shining light of the knowledge of the Lord and his steadfast love, his prayer becomes reflected back to him as courage and confidence and hope. He says, verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Where did he get that confidence to dismiss his enemies that he was terrified before at a stroke? He says, for the Lord, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer do you see in reverse order he's extolling the fact that the lord has heard all he said in those first 7 verses as he had been weeping verse 6 and 7 the lord had heard the voice of his weeping as he had pleaded verse 4 and 5 the lord had heard and his prayer verse 1 and to 3 the lord has accepted it's interesting amongst that, that the Lord has heard not just what we might think of as, as praying to him, but also the sound of his weeping, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? I once read a psychologist explaining that children, children who have suffered the very worst of neglect, don't cry. You'd think they would cry more than anyone else, wouldn't you? But it seems that they, they've learned early on that there, there's no point in crying because there is no one who will hear them when they cry. And it is in that sense that I think we should understand what he says of David's weeping here. Part of his crying is crying out to the one who does have steadfast love for David, the one who will and he knows does hear the sound even of his weeping as he drenches his couch with tears. Well, I've digressed, haven't I? As I was saying, what's happened is really wonderful. Before this point, as he thought about his suffering, what did he see? As he considered his foes, what did he see? As he saw his afflictions, well, that was all he saw. But now, as he has remembered that steadfast love that the Lord has for him in accordance with his promise of mercy, suddenly do you see the fear, the terror, the troubledness of body and soul It's drained away, hasn't it? And in its place has flooded a patient, persevering expectation of the day that the Lord will destroy his enemies. And bring him peace. An expectation that actually turns his whole worldview upside down. Whereas he was once feeling that his enemies had put him to shame, like they had glory over him and laid him low. Now, as he sees God's steadfast love, he knows that it is they who will be put to shame when the Lord does and will come to save him. This is verse 10, he says. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, if you've been looking at the outline, you'll notice I've titled this part, The Great Reflection. Did you see that? Okay, no one's looking at the outline. Okay, if you've seen it, then good. And uh, the reason that I've done that is because, actually, David does something really clever with his words here. He takes the words to describe his struggles, his troubles, his terror in the first part, and he reflects them back upon his enemies in the last. You see in verse 3. Who was greatly troubled in verse 3? David. And here in verse 10, who will be greatly troubled? His enemies. In verse 4, it was David who cried out to the Lord to turn from afflicting him. But in verse 10, who has to turn? It is his enemies who must turn before David and his God and his steadfast love. It is they who will be ashamed. And in place of, but you, O Lord, how long? we find simply in a moment. Well, having walked through the text together, what does it mean for us here today? Well, first and foremost, it may well be that there are some amongst us who are indeed suffering, greatly suffering, or perhaps who know others who are, whether at the hands of our enemies or or through other causes. And if that is you, then, like David, we shouldn't be shy of understanding that the Lord is not foreign or distant from our affliction. Nothing is beyond his sovereign rule. And so, like David, perhaps the first thing that we should seriously consider is that the Lord means in this to discipline us that he aims to rebuke us for sin, to turn us back to him. The book of Hebrews and our reading from 1 Peter both speak of this. In Hebrews, Christians are promised that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline, it says, that you have to endure, for God is treating you as sons. So if you are suffering, do be quick, do be fast like David, to examine your life and, and turn away from your sins and cry out again to the Lord for mercy. Now this is not to say that every suffering is the result of one specific sin, nor is it indeed to say that if you can find the right sins to stop, your suffering will end. Job clearly shows that there are some sufferings which are not because of our own sins but that shouldn't be an excuse not to examine our lives and be earnest in the repentance that belongs to all of God's children but repentance isn't all that we've seen suffering lead to is it for like David before us suffering should turn us not just from sin but to cry out to our Lord it causes us to confess before him that we depend ultimately only on him and him alone And so to pray to him who can save us, not only now, but for eternity. See, the Christian life should not be one of a kind of stoic silence, of of putting on a face, of pretending that all is well before God and man. That's not what it's about. It is a life of following Let me remind you, a Savior who cried out with loud cries in agony before his Father, who confessed his own sorrows, even as he still glorified his Father and loved him with an everlasting love. I love a poem by George Herbert, who puts it like this. He says, Ah, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love yet strike, cast down, yet help afford, sure I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise. I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. And it may be that for us too, like David, we are feeling that relief is too long coming. When we as we keep enduring, we, we want to cry out, but you, O Lord, how long? And we should. But even as we do, even as we cry out to him in our affliction, we should be sure that our affliction does not mean that he has rejected us. As Peter said in our reading, judgment begins with the family of God, and as if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And we have more that we must remember in our suffering. We, like David, also have a sure promise of God's steadfast love. Do you know when Martin Luther, the Reformer, said about translating the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew, he did something fascinating. He translated this word chesed, this word for steadfast love, using the German word geneder. And then in the New Testament, he translated the word which we translate grace with exactly the same word. For he rightly understood, do you see, that the place where we today see the fulfillment, the climax, the overpowering triumph of God's steadfast love is not just in the Old Testament, but most of all, in his sending his son, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That son who, in steadfast love towards you and I, suffered everything that David had feared and cried out against, who though he was perfect and without sin, took upon himself the punishment due for our sin, who was rebuked, you see, in our place, not for discipline, but with the full anger of God, who was disciplined according to his wrath and brought to nothing. Remember that this is that son who in Gethsemane was greatly troubled, whose soul was very sorrowful, even to death, where being in an an agony, prayed with sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is that son who then in Golgotha drank the cup of the wrath of God for our sins to the end, cried out in deep anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he suffered the sheer terror of judgment that indeed does lead to death. In order that he might then pour out upon us the riches of his steadfast love, his grace, even upon us poor sinners. What more sure or certain promise can there be of God's steadfast love than that the suffering and death of his son. And do you see, if we have that sure and certain promise, and we too, we know that when we do cry out to the Lord for mercy, not only do we know he will hear our prayers, but we know that he will deliver to us a full and a final end to all our afflictions and bring us strengthened and purified into everlasting joy. So if you're suffering, I want you to hold very, very firmly to that indeed. Hold firmly to that promise, do you see, that by faith you are his and no one can take you out of his hands. Even when things are so dark and the suffering so intense, the affliction so great that you think it must be that God has rejected you, know that he has not and the cross says so. Cling to his promise, not your interpretation of his works. In The 18th century, there was a hymn writer named William Cowper. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He was a man who suffered much more than many. It is, he was also a man who coming out of one of his most terrifying ordeals of all, emerged with a new found confidence in Christ's sure and simple promise. This confidence he expressed in these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. But there's more. For we have an even greater confidence, even than that. We have a confidence, do you see, even greater than King David and his trust. For if you remember in our psalm, King David feared the day that he would die no more to praise the Lord in Sheol. But let us not forget that we know that even mortal death presents to us no fear, the grave, no terror, for as we know that he has suffered death on the cross, we know that we will also live with him. We know that when he returns, he will raise us to new life. In fact, that means that even when we are on our deathbeds, we can earnestly be anticipating there as of a certainty the day when we, with all the Lord's people from all generations, will praise him forever in the great congregation as every creature, as Revelation says, as every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in it, will praise and glorify him, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Do you see, Sheol for us will not mean the end of praise. Death will not silence us, for there has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ himself a day of eternal praise with that Lord who loves us with a steadfast love A steadfast love which, let me remind you, Romans 8 describes as a love that tribulations and distress and persecution and famine and weakness and danger and the sword cannot threaten. For we know, it says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation Will be able to separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, what of that great reflection that David saw? What of verse 10 as he saw everything turned upside down? Well, dear brothers and sisters, for us too, as I said at the beginning, yes, life as the Lord's people can be hard. There can be times when our eyes are rubbed red with grief and our beds become pools of tears. When we cry, O Lord, how long? In fact, in the book of Revelation, we see the very martyrs killed for their witness to Christ, still crying from below the altar the same thing. Lord, how long, they say, before you avenge our blood upon the earth. We, like them, are told just to wait a while more. We will not wait forever. We know that he hears the voice of our prayers, the very sound of our weeping. We know that the day will indeed come when he will send his son, according to his steadfast love, to turn everything upside down and make a full end of his enemies forever. Yes, like in the time of David, our foes may look great, proud, mighty, like kings and gods on earth. It is true, we may feel ashamed, small, wretched before them, as they push us around, as they despitefully use us. But, God's, but David's great reflection will be true for us for in a moment. With the cry of an archangel and the trumpet of God, do you see, they will depart from us. They will be ashamed and greatly troubled, each and every one. It will be they who will cower on the day of judgment before the wrath of the Lamb as they plead on the very mountains to cover them. While we, with all the Lord's people, are caught up into peace and joy and glory in that kingdom where there will be no more evil or wickedness or suffering or pain anymore. The Lord will finally wipe every tear. From our eyes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we know that often you bring us low through the sufferings and the afflictions and the disciplines of this present life. We know we are surrounded by wickedness and evil. We pray, O Lord, that you would discipline us in order to turn us from our sin according to that sure and certain promise of your steadfast love in your Son. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wonders of that love that we can guarantee even though we were sinners. We pray that you would indeed strengthen us with that hope, even in the depths of the greatest suffering. And we pray for that day when, according to the same promise, you will send him back from heaven. To bring an end to all our enemies and all suffering forever, and restore to us the joy of your eternal kingdom. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.